Hi, I'm your host Lewis and welcome to Searching For It. If you walk up to a stranger on the street and you ask them who Jack Kerouac is, you'll probably get one of two answers. From one half you'll hear, who the heck is that? And from the other half you'll hear, yeah, isn't that the guy who wrote On The Road? And bizarrely and most annoyingly, I've actually found there are a few people who seem to think that Jack Kerouac's the same person as Cormac McCarthy and that he wrote The Road. And no, they're definitely not the same book. And I wonder if now I've said that, if there are a few listeners thinking, oh, that last episode makes so much more sense now I know it wasn't about The Road. In all fairness, it's for good reason that people are so quick to associate Jack Kerouac with On The Road. It makes a lot of people's lists of the greatest literature of all time, or if that's being a little bit ambitious with its praise, it'll certainly make almost all lists of modern American classics. I've even been told that On The Road is on the syllabus in at least some American high schools, which I find pleasantly surprising actually given its counterculture kind of message. But On The Road forms only one chapter in a larger collection of novels published by Kerouac, which together form what he himself dubbed the Deleuze legend. In a preface to Big Sur, another one of Kerouac's novels, Kerouac expressed an interest in compiling all of his works into one huge collection, which would illustrate his journey in entirety from start to finish. But unfortunately, having died at only 47, Kerouac didn't live long enough to see the Deleuze legend through. But he certainly did live long enough to produce some more great works of literature that explore a world beyond the frenzy of On the Road. Perhaps Kerouac's second best-known work, and for me the best point of comparison with On the Road, was Dharma Bums, which was actually published only a year after the release of On the Road in 1957. Now this book was widely regarded as one of Kerouac's best, even if it never was quite as popular, and even if it didn't inspire a Hollywood version featuring Kirsten Stewart like On the Road did. In fact, while I was researching for this episode, I did a quick Google search for Dharma Bums, and I was disappointed to find that most of the results were for some women's yoga clothing brand also called Dharma Bums. Yet while Dharma Bums bears some striking similarities to On the Road, in other ways it was the complete opposite. And don't worry, I'm not just going to leave that one there for you to ponder. It's the most annoying thing when someone speaks in opposites like that and doesn't explain what they mean. To try and expand upon what I'm saying here, I'll try to summarise it in a sentence. So Dharma Bums and On the Road both have the same goal to find it, but they find it in completely different ways of living. And this is what we're going to be exploring in this episode. What is it that Kerouac finds in Dharma Bums? And does he find something that we can all learn from and apply to our own lives? So to figure out what Kerouac's doing in Dharma Bums, I think a good starting point would be to take one of the central themes of On the Road, which is how it formed an exploration into the living embodiment of it, Neil Cassidy. You might remember that in the last episode I mentioned Kerouac's buddy, Gary Snyder, who described Kerouac's role as being he who shambles after the star of the show, who plays the supporting role of the second fiddle. So this is what's going on in On the Road. Kerouac's character, Sal Paradise, is the supporting actor to the lead role, to Neil Cassidy's own Dean Moriarty, and it's through Dean that Sal finds, or at least tries to find, it. And ironically enough, Snyder's description of Kerouac shambling along after Cassidy also acts as a perfect description of the essence of Dharma Bums, but with just one change. It's actually Snyder himself who becomes the object of Kerouac's attention. While On the Road tried to find meaning in Cassidy's way of life, Dharma Bums tries to find that meaning in Snyder, or in his similarly named character, Jaffe Ryder. So Dharma Bums is similar to On the Road, in that both books feature the narrator trailing along after the main protagonist of the book. But I'm going to talk in opposites again for a moment, when I say that while Jaffe Ryder and Dean Moriarty were extremely similar in some of the most fundamental of ways, Jaffe really was also the complete opposite of Dean. You could say Jaffe was everything that Dean wasn't. So most fundamentally, as we've already talked about, 
Both Dean Moriarty of On the Road and Jaffe Ryder of Dharma Bums share the same function in Kerouac's eyes, which is to embody it, this great and transcendent way of experiencing the world. And the real-life figures Cassidy and Snyder also had similarly unconventional upbringings which set the tone for the rest of their lives and the lifestyles that they exuded. But these childhoods couldn't be further removed from each other. They really were two extremes on either end of the spectrum. So while Cassidy grew up alongside his alcoholic father in the slums of Denver, stealing cars and flitting in and out of jail, Snyder, on the other hand, grew up on a small dairy farm, entertaining himself reading poetry and mountain climbing. And while Cassidy evolved his rugged city boy upbringing into an exhilarating and high-octane performance in his later life, Snyder became the almost monk-like poet and Buddhist academic who never lost touch with nature. And while Jaffe and Dean were both essentially rebels, they were hipsters who searched for a new way of life, they were also completely different kinds of people, and despite hanging out in the same friendship groups, actually never ignited a friendship between themselves. Cassidy really was desire and impulse in human form, this delinquent who expressed himself through his actions but never put them to publication. Meanwhile, Snyder was an intellectual. He was a Buddhist who thought that excessive desire was at the root of all human suffering. So while Cassidy stood for frenzy and for consumption, Snyder valued patience and meticulously seeking out the hidden wonders of existence that perhaps Cassidy was too impetuous to discover. And although they were two iconic figures within the Beat Generation who both represented opposite sides of the human condition, there was a sense in which the Beat Generation wasn't big enough to support the two of them. At least through Kerouac's experiences, I don't think the two of them really did coexist. Snyder essentially became Cassidy's replacement when Cassidy and Kerouac drifted apart after their final trip to Mexico. There's one particular scene in Dharma Bums during the legendary Six Gallery Poetry Reading in 1955, which many people actually credit for founding the Beat Generation, and during which Ginsberg presented his most famous poem, Howl, for the first time. Cassidy walks over to another friend, asking if he can stand with him, because in Cassidy's words, I don't know anybody here. And unsurprisingly, given their different characters and ways of life, the it that Kerouac found through Dean in On the Road, and through Jaffe and Dumb Bums, is completely different. As we discussed in the last episode, Dean demonstrated this way of living in the moment by finding some kind of ecstasy in the present, and by milking all that the world has to offer. But yet Jaffe found it in the complete opposite of this, in more the renunciation or the rejection of excessive pleasures, and in focusing just on an inner peace and tranquility rather than a frenzy. But without spending any more time mulling over Dean and Jaffe, the focus on this episode is to try and pinpoint this it that Jaffe found, and to try to figure out whether this attitude that he embodies is a more powerful and meaningful pursuit than that of Dean. So as I mentioned, like the lessons taught by Dean, those taught by Jaffe are there to be lived, they're not just to be written about and spoken about. For example, it's the Zen branch of Buddhism through which the philosophy of Dharma Bums is presented. And in an essay on Zen Buddhism, the philosopher and Buddhist Alan Watts, who is actually himself a key figure in Dharma Bums, he begins by writing that Zen doesn't involve a doctrine, not a set of beliefs as we ordinarily understand religion, but a transformation of consciousness, that is to say, a transformation of the way in which we experience our own existence at every moment. And equally, the it, for want of a better word, presented in Dharma Bums, is a way of thinking and of understanding and experiencing the world. In general, it's a way, a method, rather than a fact or a belief or a system of beliefs. When we talked about On the Road in the last episode, we looked at a few key themes which act as a manifestation of the it that Kerouac thought himself to have found. In particular, the drugs, the sex, the jazz music. 
But given that it isn't a belief or a fact, it's not something easily outlined in a sentence. I think it helps to do the same here with how it's presented in Dharma Bums. So firstly, you've got the Buddhism that forms the foundation of the novel, just as you had the Catholicism in On the Road. But I don't find it too helpful to take this too literally. I mean, if we wanted to find whether Buddhism can lead us to a higher meaning or purpose, we could spend a whole episode or many episodes talking about Buddhism, which for what it's worth I do intend to do in a future episode. But for the sake of Kerak and Dharma Bums, I think what we can take from the Buddhism is the spirit behind the Buddhist way of life. What's important here is essentially the withdrawal from excess and the move towards inner peace that Buddhism stands for. And linked to the Buddhism and also the meditation is the solitude that also forms a key component of Dharma Bums, and even more so in another one of Kerak's books, Desolation Angels, and which stands in stark contrast to the sensory overload of On the Road. Much of the plot of Dharma Bums involves Kerak removing himself from fast-paced city life, living in a cabin on the outskirts of a town in a friend's beautiful meadow-like backyard, in hitchhiking and mountain climbing, and at the end of the novel and carrying over into Desolation Angels, actually spending a whole summer in utter solitude atop Desolation Peak. And it was here, on Desolation Peak, at the advice of Jaffe, Kerak took a job as a fire lookout on the top of a mountain, living in a simple cabin with absolutely nobody else for company, besides the other lookouts who Kerak could reach on his walkie-talkie, but who he mostly ignored anyway in order to focus on living in solitude. This summer was supposed to be an experiment for Kerak, into this new individual way of living, and into living an authentic Buddhist lifestyle. But Kerak didn't always find it easy to channel into this world of Zen. There's this rambling three-page section in Desolation Angels about some baseball card game he'd created, which I think is testament to his boredom and his mind's struggles for something to focus on and consume. But nevertheless, Kerak's move to solitude gives Kerak a crucial ability to hone in on his transcendence from within. And I think this largely embodies what Kerak's trying to do in Dharma Bums. He rejects the idea of transcendence from external pleasures, as in on the road. So think the jazz, the marijuana, the sex. These all come from outside. And instead, he introspects and tries to develop and cultivate that passion inside himself to find happiness and purpose within. And oftentimes, this emphasis on solitude also came hand in hand with another key theme of Dharma Bums, which is a kind of oneness with nature. And again, this stands in stark contrast with the city life embodied in On the Road. Instead, many of the most memorable passages of the book involve Kerouac immersing himself in the great outdoors. And beyond the summer that Kerouac spent in solitude on Desolation Peak, and if I'm being completely honest, I found a lot of Kerouac's ramblings in that portion of the book almost unintelligible. You've also got the hike that Jaffe took Ray upon, up Matterhorn Peak in the Sierra Nevada, and the iconic moments that Kerouac spent meditating under a tree in a meadow at his mother's house. And to be clear, when I mention Ray, this is Kerouac's character in Dharma Bums, just as Sal was Kerouac's character in On the Road. In one of his outdoors meditating sessions, Kerouac describes reaching this state which I found absolutely fascinating. It's the kind of state you'd imagine that could only be reached with a crutch of psychedelic drugs. So Kerouac describes seeing walls of salmon pink flowers rise up before his eyes, giving rise to a vision of Dipankara Buddha, before reaching what Kerouac described as a state of pure egolessness, essentially reaching ego death which involves shattering the concept of the I, of the self, and just being. Whether or not spending time in and appreciating nature is necessary for reaching this inner enlightenment, I'm not sure. But what this immersion in nature definitely does do, it allows you to feel a unity with nature. And once you feel this unity with nature, this can lead to these further realisations that Kerak had, like the realisation that there's no real difference between yourself and the world around you, you're one and the same thing. 
and having this realisation which arises from your connection with nature can then perhaps facilitate this feeling of divine oneness that Kerouac felt sitting underneath the tree in the meadow. So in the search for meaning in Dharma Bums, so far we've spoken about how Jaffe encourages Ray to search for meaning in Buddhism, in solitude and in a unity with nature. I think there's one further key theme in Dharma Bums worth exploring that complements these other themes and in fact adds to their significance. And this is the idea of living deliberately. For those of you who haven't heard this expression before, the idea of living deliberately is all about being, well, deliberate in everything you do. It's about cutting down on the nothingness that wastes your time and serves no purpose to you, and focusing all your time and energies on the things that really matter. There's a whole lot going on beneath the surface of this idea, and in the next episode we'll explore this in much greater depth, particularly through the lens of Thoreau's book Walden, which really popularised this notion. But this sense of living deliberately is one of the most striking things that really stands out from the character of Jaffe and Dharma Bums. Jaffe justifies this way of life at one stage, saying to Ray, in a passage of text that really reminds me of that great line in Fight Club, where Tyler Durden chastises the generation that he sees, pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars, advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. And in a similar vein to this, Jaffe in Dharma Bums tells Sal of his vision of rucksack wanderers, Dharma bums refusing to subscribe to the general demand that they consume production, and therefore have to work for the privilege of consuming. All the crap that they didn't really want anyway, such as refrigerators, TV sets, cars, and general junk you finally always see a week later in the garbage anyway. All of them imprisoned in a system of work, produce, consume. Work, produce, consume. I see a vision of a great rucksack revolution. Thousands or even millions of young Americans wandering around with rucksacks, going up to mountains to pray, making children laugh and old men glad, making young girls happy and old girls happier. All of them Zen lunatics who go about writing poems that happen to appear in their heads for no reason, and also by being kind and also by strange unexpected acts, keep giving visions of eternal freedom to everybody and to all living creatures. But the difference here between Tyler Durden and Jaffe Ryder is that while the philosophy Tyler expresses in Fight Club is more negative insofar as he criticises the system without offering a substantial alternative, Jaffe, on the other hand, really does have his vision mapped out and he lived it himself. In fact, referring to the real-life Gary Snyder, the philosopher Alan Watts writes, Gary had figured out, really and truly, how to live the simple life. He explained to me how to get by on practically no money. Snyder wasn't just an intellectual. He wasn't just a mountain climber or a Buddhist. He was this extraordinarily multi-talented man who was able to control each facet of his life in order to really facilitate his becoming the greatest version of himself he can be. And on this note, one of the passages of the book that really stuck with me, it's a fairly mundane passage of the surface, was that when Kerak described Snyder living in a cute little cottage shack in a friend's backyard, spending his days meditating, reading and writing and studying, and spending his weekends drinking wine and hanging out with one of his lovers. I felt a real pang of jealousy reading this section. I suggested to my girlfriend that we find a cheap place to rent, we don't bother with Wi-Fi and just focus on the creator projects we want to pursue on as little money as possible. But for me, it's not that realistic. You know, I've got too many costs that I can't make up for myself. I have to pay rent. I wouldn't know how to fix the plumbing when it broke. I'd need to buy food. But as Watts pointed out, Jaffe had mastered the art of living on almost nothing. And this allowed him to live deliberately and to spend his life doing what he wanted to do. So let's bring these thoughts together and try and pin down what it was that Jaffe was supposed to have found in Dharma Bums. What was this it? There's a section in which Kerak reflects on his morning spent meditating outside and the lessons he's learnt, and he writes, 
Here, this is it. The world as it is, is heaven. I'm looking for a heaven outside what there is, and it's only this poor, pitiful world that's heaven. Ah, if I could realise, if I could forget myself and devote my meditations to the freeing, the awakening and the blessedness of all living creatures everywhere, I'd realise what there is, is ecstasy. The idea Kerouac's expressing here is that he's been looking for it outside the world as it really is, when in fact the answer was there all along. There's an ecstasy in the world simply as it is. As we saw earlier, it's not through any external pleasures or experiences that Kerouac finds true meaning here. He finds it from removing himself from the distractions of the world around him, and looking within himself to find that higher purpose. It's, I think, the solitude that allows him to remove himself from such distractions, the meditation that then allows him to contemplate and look within himself, and the deliberate living that allows him to focus on his experiment and see clearly into the truth that's there to be discovered, and then finally the connection with nature that allows him to discover this beautiful oneness with the rest of the universe. But although this exploration of within forms the soul of dumb bums, if you were to draw a scale with hedonism and the indulgence of external pleasures on one end of the scale, and the absolute renunciation or rejection of external pleasures, and an exclusive emphasis on internal tranquillity on the other end of the scale, I do think Jaffe's philosophy would actually fall somewhere in the middle of the scale, albeit probably closer to the latter end. I mentioned earlier that Jaffe would often spend weekends hanging out with lovers and drinking wine, and in Jaffe's opinion, this in no way undermined his spiritual beliefs. Jaffe specifically argues to Ray at one point that his Zen form of Buddhism is compatible with hosting parties, having sex and drinking alcohol. And in fact, Jaffe had a pretty striking conception of sexuality, and the parties he co-hosted form some of the most memorable passages of the book. They'd host parties with around 20 people or so with wine flowing all night, and it became common practice that, slowly but surely, all attendees would begin losing their clothes before descending into what was ultimately a big orgy. And at these parties, Kerak references the practice of yabyum that Jaffe endorses, which is this tantric sex practice in which a man sits cross-legged on the floor, and his partner sits on his lap, facing him with her legs wrapped round his waist. So this position is supposed to represent a dualism between, firstly the man, who's the passive meditator who represents pure awareness, and then the woman who represents pure energy, and together they represent a dualism of the two, which brings one closer to transcendence. In reference to these parties though, and the sexuality and the yabyum, some readers might feel uncomfortable at the way that women and their sexuality are depicted in the novel. None of the main characters of the book are female, and those female characters that are included appear only to be there in order to serve the male characters and colour in their own sexuality. And while Kerak is by no means immune to criticism on this point, I do think it's worth bearing in mind precisely that, that it's Kerak under attack here, and not the ideas he expresses in the book. This doesn't detract from the lifestyle he endorses, and there's nothing about this lifestyle that renders it essentially male rather than female. There are a few ways you might want to look at this aspect of Jaffe's lifestyle. A more hardlined ascetic, and as I mentioned in the last episode, by ascetic I mean someone who's committed to abstaining from indulgences. They might perceive Jaffe's openness to sexuality and, for want of a better word, his openness to fun, as cheapening his philosophy. Kerouac was pretty conflicted about this thought. At one point, Allen Ginsberg's character, Alva Goldberg, asks Kerouac's character, Ray, Don't you think it's much more interesting to be like Jaffe and have girls and studies and good times? But Ray, however, plays the part of the hardlined ascetic and replies, No. Jaffe's consumption of alcohol and desire for girls goes against this. Ray says all Jaffe's doing is amusing himself in the void. And by amusing himself in the void, I take Ray as looking down on Jaffe here. 
Ray seems to think that their whole spiritual adventure is about finding something more meaningful, but the sexual indulgences are nothing more than a cheap sideshow to the main attraction. But Jaffe, on the other hand, doesn't see his sexual activity as a weakness. At one point he says, I distrust any form of Buddhism or any kind of philosophy or social system that puts down sex. In the last episode, I finished by mentioning that there might be some kind of middle ground between having concern for others and forming meaningful relationships with other people, alongside the madness and frenzy that Dean embodies in On the Road. And while I don't want to be the guy who always stays safe in the middle ground, I do think that Jaffe raises a good point here about not taking abstinence too seriously. If we take the it embodied in Dharma Bums to its logical conclusion, we end up in a world of abstinence, solitude, and just like in On the Road, devoid of meaningful relationships with other people. But this doesn't mean we should abandon the Jaffe philosophy altogether though. There's a definite truth in that nothing external is enough to guarantee your happiness. There's a scene in Bojack Horseman in which Bojack's told, It doesn't matter where you are, it's who you are. And that's not going to change whether you're in California or Maine or New Mexico. You know, you can't escape you. The point here is that happiness is something individual to yourself, and something that only you have full control over. And Jaffe's definitely onto something by journeying within himself to find that meaning. But Jaffe also recognises that there's a world outside the self, that even if it isn't sufficient to make you happy, even if it isn't enough and you still need to work on yourself too, it may well be necessary or at least very important for a fulfilling life. This is something I'd found towards the end of last year, so I went on my first silent meditation retreat, literally just meditating and being for two days, with not a word communicated to anyone else. I found it to be a really rewarding experience. It was like hitting the reset button on yourself and reconnecting with what's important. But it's not a life I could ever live permanently. There's too many wonderful things in the world to explore and to experience. But there's no reason why you can't put the two together, and that's kind of what you get when you mix Kerouac's On the Road together with Dharma Bums. You mix the passionate indulgence of Dean Moriarty and his ability to squeeze all the pleasure and ecstasy out of the world around you, with the wisdom and the awareness of Jaffe Ryder and his ability to funnel it into a transcendent inner state. Now, don't get me wrong, for sure, it would be an oversimplification to suggest that by marrying on the road together with Dharma Bums, we find a secret formula for it and the question's been put to rest. We can end the podcast here, it's all been done. There are definitely still some contradictions you might point to in Dharma Bums, or ingredients that are still missing. For example, we mentioned in the last episode how there was an air of entitlement surrounding Dean's lifestyle. You know, his reliance on the goodwill of others to support his travels would prevent everyone from packing their bags and living on the road like Dean. And equally, there's a passage in Dharma Bums where Jaffe's selling his idea of a backpacker revolution to Ray, and asks Ray to think of the millions of guys all over the world with rucksacks on their backs, tramping around the backcountry and hitchhiking and bringing the world down to everybody. And in another passage, Jaffe expresses his idea for a load of meditation halls where these backpackers could go to crash amongst their friends. But this raises the question, who's supposed to support this lifestyle? Who's supposed to run these meditation halls and who's supposed to drive the cars in which they hitchhike? Now in fairness, Jaffe did spend much more time thinking about these questions than Dean, and his self-sufficiency acts as some kind of an answer but I think it's yet to be seen if the world would continue to function in an acceptable manner if everyone were to just join the backpacker revolution. And of course there's also the lack of genuine and meaningful romance depicted in Dharma Bums. As we discussed earlier, the novel's very male-centric, and the female characters do little more than just colour in the fairly shallow and superficial sexual encounters that fail to make the jump from lust to love. But to be fair to Kerouac, to give him his due, he didn't profess to have all the answers. 
And Dharma Bums, I think, is to be read more of an experiment into it, rather than as a manifesto of how we all ought to live. We don't yet know how to strike the balance between solitude and introspection on the one hand, and pleasure in close personal relationships on the other. And nor is there a clear and reliable path to the inner enlightenment that Kerouac seeks in Dharma Bums. But even with these questions unanswered, and even if not everyone is capable of joining this backpacker revolution, I think that Kerak poses some really interesting and valuable challenges to us about the overemphasis that we place on consumption and indulgence, and the lack of emphasis that we place on our own internal spiritual development, and the lack of thought that we give to living our lives deliberately. In the next episode, we're going to dive deeper into this idea of living deliberately, and talk about Thoreau and his big investigation into this concept in Walden. Until then, if you enjoyed the show today, please do subscribe. And if you were able to leave a rating on your podcast app of choice, it really would be a massive help in keeping the show's momentum going. Something to do with the algorithms. Or if you'd like to support the show, please head to www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. Mm-hmm.